Last year, New York State's appeals court ruled on a 91-year-old securities law known as the Martin Act. Their decision now gives investors more leeway to sue investment firms that could have an impact on how financial regulations are enforced in our state. University of Pennsylvania law professor David Skill recently wrote about the Martin Act in an article called Caveat Preemptor. It's in the latest issue of Pacific Standard Magazine, and I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Skill to our show. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm okay. What was the Martin Act uh, originally devised to do in 1921? Well, in theory, what it was devised to do was to give the New York Attorney General more power to police dubious securities offering. The reality at in the beginning in 1921 is that it was a at the time a very weak law that New York enacted only because everybody else uh, every other state had already enacted one. But ostensibly the uh, the rationale for it was to give the Attorney General more power to police uh, dubious and fraudulent securities offerings. After 1921, it, it became a much more important law, and it, it changed over the years, both through courts and through uh, legislative action, to become, become a much more sweeping anti-fraud law. Well, eight years later, we had the crash. Uh, but uh, New York is a state that's very aware of uh, its, uh, the fact that it's the home of financial firms, uh, did that was that a factor in in its being a rather weak law at the beginning, as you say? It absolutely was a factor. In fact, it was the factor. In other states, the state attorney general really would have no reason um, not to intervene, not to make it tough for people to issue securities, because they were always being issued out of New York. Uh, in New York, it was more complicated because uh, the securities industry was in New York as, as well as some of the victims. And you mentioned that the scope of the law expanded throughout uh, the years following. In what ways? It expanded in a variety of ways. Uh, one way ex it expanded is the definition of, of security was broadened dramatically. And so it, it didn't just have to be a stock and bond or bond. Almost anything that was traded uh, could be a security, technically, including forged Salvador Dali prints um, at one point. So that's one way uh, it was expanded. More importantly for the security securities industry and for potential victims of the industry, it was expanded to include criminal sanctions uh, a couple decades later, and the definition of fraud was dramatically expanded so that uh, in order to come within the act, you didn't have to commit traditional fraud, um, uh, essentially anything that looked uh, relatively like fraud came within the act. So it, it really expanded in every direction, but, what it covered, how it covered. But then you say the Martin Act came to be an all-encompassing shield against responsibility on Wall Street. How did it get turned on its head? Well, this was this is the most dramatic turn in the story. I mean, uh, that was my reaction. How did it get turned on its head? Well, what what happened was the first issue was whether ordinary investors could invoke the protections of the Martin Act. I mentioned a moment ago that it was originally put in place uh, as a power to the attorney general, and so there was a question whether the attorney general was the only one who could invoke it, or whether an ordinary investor 
investor who had been harmed could invoke it. This question was arising at the same time as we had the same question under the federal securities laws. The federal securities laws also uh, uh, don't say specifically that private investors can enforce. Uh, with, the federal insecure, with the federal securities law, early on it was concluded, back in the 40s and 50s, it was concluded that private investors could sue. Uh, people assume the same thing would happen with the Martin Act, but um, eventually, uh, in 1987, New York's highest court said, no, private investors cannot sue under, under the Martin Act. So that was the first big blow. The second blow was that defendants in these cases, and these were the major Wall Street investment banks primarily, started arguing that not only could ordinary investors not sue under the Martin Act, uh, New York's highest court had said that, but they started to argue that investors couldn't even bring actions that looked a little bit like Martin Act. Um, Action. So the argument that was being made in the courts was that not only was the Martin Act off limits, but anything that looked like the Martin Act, which meant anything that looked remotely like fraud or that kind of misbehavior, also was off limits to ordinary investors. And, and that's the case that uh, the case that finally resolves this is the case I talk about in the article. Well, what role does the world of New York City real estate play in this story? Why were co-op and condo purchases even included in the scope of the Martin Act in the 1960s? Well, this is another good question, and that's that's a piece, uh, another piece of the story. Uh, one answer to the question: Well, why is it that the New York courts have been so reluctant to let ordinary investors use the Martin Act? I think the ultimate answer is that the Martin Act in 1960 was expanded to include basically co-op fraud and misbehavior in the apartment and condominium and in co-op um, industry. And a lot of people think that the tightening of, uh, of the availability of the Martin Act is as a result of that. There were a number of cases where people were unhappy with their co-op, sued under the Martin Act, and uh, ultimately that was taken away. Um, and the argument, the, the, the successful arguments in the lower courts that were say, that were along the lines of, uh, well, you, not only can you not sue under the Martin Act, but you can't bring anything like a Martin Act suit, came out of the co-op cases. And, and um, the rationale for prohibiting uh, ordinary co-op users um, from going forward with these cases uh, was generally a rationale that they would not have any cause of action if it weren't for the inclusion of co-ops within the Martin Act. So and the also, they also argue that these all lead to frivolous suits when you exactly. allow private litigation. So it really was up to attorneys general to reinstate the Martin Act or to revive it. Elliot Spitzer loved doing it. Now we have New York Attorney General uh, Schneiderman. Uh, he, uh, so have we seen a revival of the Martin Act, especially in the case that you're talking about? And can you talk about that case? Uh, I, I can, and, and let me just clarify, uh, as really as you just did, that there, there are two different things going on here. One is the use by the Attorney General of the Martin Act, which nobody has ever 
questioned. It's, it's clear the Martin Act gives the Attorney General um, very broad powers. Elliot Spitzer dusted off these powers uh, in uh, in the early 2000s, and each uh, each succeeding Attorney General has has used the Martin Act as well as as Attorney General. So that's one um, one set of uses of the Martin Act. The other is its availability or or non-availability for private investors who have been hurt. And the uh, the case that we keep alluding to was a case that that grew out of the subprime crisis, where a private uh, investor, or it actually was a uh, was a fund, uh, uh, wanted to sue J.P. Morgan uh, because of its its investment of uh, of the plaintiffs' funds in subprime mortgages. And and, and the uh, six to two ruling uh, last year in New York's highest court. Uh, was against J.P. Morgan. So does this open up all sorts of stuff that uh, hasn't been allowed uh, over the past 50, 60 years? It absolutely does, or at least potentially does, um, uh, open up suits that would not have been possible. And um, given the difficulty of bringing other kinds of similar suits, given the difficulty now of bringing federal securities law suits, for instance, this is an incredibly important development. It, it makes it possible or could make it possible to bring litigation that really has been shut down in the last couple decades. So uh, we won't have to rely on the attorney general to do it. Uh, it's, we're turning the Martin Act on its head again. Or we're at least twisting back a little bit to where people thought we were 20, 20 years ago. And it's, it's worth noting that the attorney general has explicitly endorsed uh, the use of the Martin or, or the, the ability to bring these kinds of suits. The attorney general's office filed a friend of the court brief in this case, say, essentially saying we in the attorney's general office cannot do it all on our own. We, we need some scope for private investors to be able to sue. We have less than a minute. Some activists have suggested that the new broader definition of the Martin Act can be used to help investors occupy America's courts. I think that's right. I, I think that's right. It's uh, in, a, in a period of time where there hasn't been lots of good news for investors. I think this case is really good news, and it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. Well, that's why we are pointing it out. It's in the uh, latest issue of Pacific Standard Magazine. I think we will have a link to it on our show page at WNYC.org. And my great thanks to David Skeel, who is a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, for talking about it. Uh, the article is called Caveat Preemptor. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a oh, real... Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity. And I'm ready to go and sue somebody. <laughs> oh, I'll be there. I'll be right there with you.